Chapter Two of Margaret Fuller, Marquesa Osoli, by Julia Ward Howe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Life in Cambridge, friendship of Doctor Hedge and James Freeman Clark. Doctor Hedge, a lifelong friend of Margaret, has given a very interesting sketch of her in her girlhood he first met her when he was a student at harvard and she a maiden of thirteen in her father's house at cambridge her precocity mental and physical was such that she passed for a much older person and had already a recognized place in society she was at this time in blooming and vigorous health with a tendency to over stoutness which the doctor thinks gave her some trouble she was not handsome or even pretty but her animated countenance at once made its own impression and awakened in those who saw her a desire to know more of her fine hair and teeth vivacious eyes and a peculiarly graceful carriage of the head and neck were points which redeemed her from the charge of plainness this face of hers was indeed somewhat problematic in its expression which carried with it the assurance of great possibilities but not the certainty of their fulfilment her conversation was already brilliant and full of interest with a satirical turn which became somewhat modified in after life dr hedge fixes her stay in the groton school at the years eighteen twenty four eighteen twenty five and mentions her indulgence in sarcasm as a source of her trouble to her in a school earlier attended that of dr park of boston in the year eighteen twenty six his slight acquaintance with her grew into a friendship which as we have said ended only with her life during the seven years that followed he had abundant occasion to note her steady growth and the intensity of her inner life this was with her as with most young persons a period of romance and of dreams of yearning and of passion he thinks that she did not at this time pursue any systematic study she read with the heart and was learning more from social experience than from books one leading trait of her life was already prominent this was a passionate love of all beauties both in nature and in art if not corresponding to a scholar's idea of systematic study margaret's pursuit of culture in those years must have been arduous and many-sided this we may partly gather from the books named and the themes touched upon in her correspondence with the beloved teacher who had brought her such near and tender help in her hour of need to this lady in a letter dated july eleventh eighteen twenty five margaret rehearses the routine of her daily life i rise a little before five walk an hour and then practice on the piano till seven when we breakfast next i read french sismondi's literature of the south of europe till eight then two or three lectures in brown's philosophy about half-past nine i go to mr perkins school and study greek till twelve when the school being dismissed i recite go home and practice again till dinner at two sometimes if the conversation is very agreeable i lounge for half an hour over the dessert though rarely so lavish of time then when i can i read two hours in italian but i am often interrupted at six i walk or take a drive before going to bed i play or sing for half an hour and about eleven retire to write a little while in my journal exercises on what i have read or a series of characteristics which i am filling up according to advice a year later she mentions studying madame de stull epictetus milton racine and castilian ballads with great delight 
she asks her correspondent whether she would rather be the brilliant distull or the useful edgeworth in eighteen twenty seven we find her occupied with a critical study of the elder italian poets she now mentions miss frances lydia maria child as her intended companion in a course of metaphysical study she characterizes this lady as a natural person a most rare thing in this age of cant and pretension her conversation is charming she brings all her powers to bear upon it her style is varied and she has a very pleasant and spirited way of thinking margaret's published correspondence with her dear teacher ends in eighteen thirty with these words my beloved supporter in those sorrowful hours can i ever forget that to your treatment in that crisis of youth i owe the true life the love of truth and honour from these years of pedagogy and of patience we must now pass to the time when this bud so full of promise unfolded into a flower rare and wondrous the story of margaret's early studies and the wide reach of her craving for knowledge already mark her as a creature of uncommon gifts a devourer of books she had been from the start but books alone could not content this ardent mind at once so critical and so creative she must also have life at first hand and feed her intelligence from its deepest source hence the long story of her friendships so many and various yet so earnest and efficient what the chosen associates of this wonderful woman have made public concerning the interest of her conversation and the value of her influence tasks to the utmost the believing powers of a time in which the demon of self-interest seems to unfold himself out of most of the metaphoric flowers of society margaret and her friends might truly have said our kingdom is not of this world at least according to what this world calls kingly but what imperial power had this self-poised soul which could so widely open its doors and so closely shut them which could lead in its train the brightest and purest intelligences and bind the sweet influences of starry souls in the garland of its happy hours and here we may say her kingdom was not all of this world for the kingdom of noble thought and affection is in this world and beyond it and the real and ideal are at peace within its bounds in the divided task of margaret's biography it was given to james freeman clark to speak of that early summer of her life in which these tender and intimate relations had their first and most fervent unfolding the harvard student of that day was probably a personage very unlike the present revered pastor of the church of the disciples yet we must believe that the one was graciously foreshadowed in the other and that margaret found in him the germ of what the later world has learned so greatly to respect and admire the acquaintance between these two began in eighteen twenty nine and was furthered by a family connection which margaret in one of her early letters playfully characterized as a cousinship in the thirty-seventh degree during the two years immediately following the two young people either met or corresponded daily in explaining the origin of this friendship mr clark modestly says she needed a friend to whom to speak of her studies to whom to express the ideas which were dawning and taking shape in her mind she accepted me for this friend and to me it was a gift of the gods an influence like no other this intercourse was at first on both sides an entertainment sought and found 
in its early stages margaret characterizes her correspondent as a socialist by vocation a sentimentalist by nature and a channingite from force of circumstance and of fashion further acquaintance opened beneath the superficial interest the deeper sources of sympathy and a valued letter from margaret is named by mr clark as having laid the foundation of a friendship to which he owed both intellectual enlightenment and spiritual enlargement more than for these he thanks margaret for having imparted to him an impulse which carried him bravely forward in what has proved to be the normal direction of his life although destined after those early years of intimate communion to live far apart and in widely different spheres of labor and of interest the regard of the two friends never suffered change or diminution and here we come upon a governing feature in margaret's intercourse with her friends she had the power of leading those who interested her to a confidence which unfolded to her the deepest secrets of their life now came in play that unexplained action of one mind upon another which we call personal magnetism and which is more distinctly recognized to-day than in other times as an element in social efficiency it is this power which united with intellectual force gives leadership to individual men and enables the great orator to hold a mighty audience in the hollow of his hand with margaret at the period we speak of the exercise of this power was intensive rather than extensive the circumstance of the time had something to do with this here was a soul whose objects and desires boldly transcended the sphere of ordinary life it could neither wholly contain nor fitly utter itself pulpit and platform were then interdicted to her sex the mimic stage had she thought of it would have mocked her with its unreality on single souls one at a time she laid her detaining grasp and asked what they could receive and give something noble she must perceive in them before she would condescend to this parley she did not insist that her friend should possess genius but she could only make friends of those who like herself were seekers after the higher life worthiness of object commended even mediocrity to her but shallow worldliness awakened her contempt in the exercise of this discrimination she no doubt sometimes gave offence mr clark acknowledges that she not only seemed but was haughty and supercilious to the multitude while to the chosen few she was the very embodiment of tender and true regard it must also be acknowledged that this same magnetism which attracted some persons so strongly was to others as strongly repellent where she was least known this repulsion was most felt it yielded to admiration and esteem where acquaintance went beyond the mere recognition of margaret's air and manner which made a stranger a little uncertain whether he would be amicably entertained or subjected to a reductio ad absurdum as in any community impressions of personality are more likely to be superficial than thorough it is probable that a very general misunderstanding which at a later day grew up between margaret and the great world of a small new england city had its origin in a misconstruction of her manner when among strangers or on the occasion of a first introduction to recall this shallow popular judgment of her is not pleasant but some mention of it does belong to any summary of her life with such friends as she had 
she had no reason to look upon herself as one who was neither understood nor appreciated yet her heart which instinctively sought the empire of universal love may have been grieved at the indifference and dislike which she sometimes encountered those who know how in some circles her name became a watchword for all that was eccentric and pretentious in the womanhood of her day will smile or sigh at the contrast between the portraitures of margaret given in the volumes of the memoir and the caricature of her which was current in the mind of the public at large these remarks anticipate the pains and distinctions of a later period for the present let us confine our attention to the happy days at cambridge which margaret may not have recognized as such but which must have seemed bright to her when contrasted with the years of labor and anxiety which followed them mr clark tells us that margaret and he began the study of the german language in eighteen thirty two moved thereunto by thomas carlyle's brilliant exposition of the merits of leading german authors in three months time margaret had acquired easy command of the language and within the year had read the most important works of goethe and schiller with the writings also of tieck koerner richter and novalis extracts from her letters at this time show that this extensive reading was neither hasty nor superficial she finds herself happier in the companionship of schiller than in that of goethe of whom she says that perfect wisdom and merciless reason seem cold after those seducing pictures of forms more beautiful than truth the elective affinities suggests to her various critical questions but does not carry her away with the sweep of its interest from the immense superiority of goethe she finds it a relief to turn to the simplicity of novalis a wondrous youth who has written only one volume and whose one-sidedness imperfection and glow seem refreshingly human to her koerner becomes a fixed star in the heaven of her thought lessing enters her less she credits him with the production of well-conceived and sustained characters and interesting situations but not with any profound knowledge of human nature i think him easily followed strong but not deep this was with margaret as dr hedge has well observed the period of romance her superiority to common individuals appeared in the fact that she was able to combine with intense personal aspirations and desires a wide outlook into the destinies of the human race we find her in these very days engaged in surveying the level on which the public mind is poised she turns from the poetic tragedy and comedy of life to study as she says the rules of its prose and to learn from the talk of common people what elements and modes of thought go to make up the average american mind she listens to george thompson the english anti-slavery orator and is led to say that if she had been a man she should have coveted the gift of eloquence above all others and this for the intensity of its effects she thinks of writing six historical tragedies and devises the plan for three of them tales of hebrew history it is also in her mind to compose becoming convinced that some fixed opinion on the subject of metaphysics is an essential aid to systemic culture she addresses herself to the study of fichte and jacobi of brown and stuart the first of these appeared to her incomprehensible 
of the second she conjectures that his views are derived from some author whom she has not read she thinks in good earnest of writing a life of goethe and wishes to visit europe in order to collect the material requisite for this her appreciation of dr channing is shown in a warm encomium on his work treating of slavery of which she says it has come like a breath borne over some solemn sea which separates us from an island of righteousness in summing up his account of this part of margaret's life mr clark characterizes self-culture as the object in which she was content to lose sight of all others her devotion to this great end was he says wholly religious and almost christian she was religious in her recognition of the divine element in human experience and christian in her elevation above the sordid interests of life and in her devotion to the highest standards of duty and of destiny he admits however that her aim noble as it was long remained too intensely personal to reach the absolute generosity required by the christian rule this defect made itself felt outwardly by a certain disesteem of the vulgar herd and in an exaggerated worship of great personalities its inner effects were more serious to her darling desire for growth and development she sacrificed everything but manifest duty the want of harmony between her outward circumstances and her inward longings so detained her thoughts that she was unable to pass beyond the confines of the present moment and could not foresee that true growth must bring her as it soon did a great enlargement of influence and relation End of chapter two